soon then we're going to have to be concerned about the machine state of mind <laughs> as well. <laughs> well, it already happens, you know. Sometimes when I'm really stressed, I think the machine kind of feels it and senses it and tortures me specifically. So I actually, this is funny. So Olga, yes, uh, welcome to Scholars in Spotlight. Thank you okay. very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Perfect. Finally, we did it. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you're right. I actually try to be nice to machines and electronic things, sometimes consciously. Uh, it seems a little odd, a little crazy. But what I see happening, <laughs> what if they actually remember, you know, <laughs> what have you done to them and how you have cursed them? Yes. So I think when they wake up or something, they will like, you know, this person was... Mean to me. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, I think it, it must be a state of mind that you project towards the machine. But I do find that when I'm anxious or angry towards the machine, the machine responds in the same way to me. That so. is, yeah, that's, that's interesting. Because I think just perceiving, I think, time. Mm-hmm. So when you want the things to be done faster, yes. you're really focused on how yeah. slow yes. <laughs> the action of the uh, of computer or whatever you're trying to get done. Yeah. And then you get even more frustrated, hence you get even more fixated on that one point. And then it seems like, I think, that, oh, yeah, this is exactly, this machine is not responding to me. Why do you do this to me? (laughs) Yes, yes, I think it's a way to perceive the world as well if it's been around you and your own inability to to make it work. But um, So... uh, Mobile phones, another yes. machine. <clears throat> you just mentioned just before we started recording yeah. that uh, uh, the one of the best ways to actually be sustainable about mobile phones are to actually reuse them or inherit. That was an interesting term, inherit it from other people. But that was interesting to me. I mean, why is that? Like, what what is the cost of making a mobile phone because we consider it literally as a piece of material which is just go and we have a contract and we just pick it off from the shelf and we buy it and then we start using it and then we get bored and we throw it sometimes or we just leave it on a shelf and then we go and buy another one but what is at the back end of that mobile phone because I think you have done a lot of research into electronic supply chain and the industry so it would be good to start from our point of view, where we are benign and we just, you know, think mm-hmm. of it as a piece of uh, fruit, which mm-hmm. I think has less complications involved. Maybe I'm wrong, but mm-hmm. let's just consider it for an example. And uh, how deep it actually goes into the supply chain and the people who are building it. So. Mm-hmm. It's um, that's a very interesting and important question for us to understand how the things that we use and that the things that we take for granted every day are actually produced and the the people that are involved in this production. Um, I always like to uh, quote um, what um, the company Fairphone, which is a company that is trying to make uh, ethical, sustainable phones, um, says, which is the most sustainable phone is the one you have in your pocket. <laughs> so, uh, the uh, which is a matter of the approach towards the consumption itself. But so let's think uh, of um, global supply chains. How do uh, products and services come to our hands? And their global supply chains is are very complex. And we live um, in a world of supply chains. This is every product that we have next to us has been uh, built through um, a whole um process of uh, of dif- locating the production in many different countries in many different uh, stages and with lots of uh, uh, people involved the way that uh, supply chains have evolved uh, in the last 20 30 years is uh, what we call buyer driven supply chain which is the buyer for example the brand let's talk if we talk about phones we talk about apple samsung highway um these the brands are the the most powerful element of the supply chain there's the one who establish all the conditions as to when when the pieces have to be in each um, stage of the supply chain, when the final product has to come, what is the new design, what is the new characteristic that it needs to have. Um, but um, so it, it actually has all the power 
towards the supply chain, but it doesn't have any kind of uh, responsibility or any kind of relationship with the people who produce the the pieces, the whole products, who are along the chain. There is no contractual relationship between Apple and the person who actually first mines the tin or the coltan and uh, or the gold that needs to go into the product. There's no contractual relationship between Apple or think of a big retailer, for example, think of Walmart or even John Lewis, the, the, the big retailers that have a lot of power over the supply chain because they are the ones who decide which product, when it has to be in, what's the quality, uh, etc. cetera, uh, towards the people that actually do make them. This makes a big void of responsibility. Mm. If uh, the working conditions okay. of these people are not determined by uh, the the where the companies that actually take the decisions are this is in the west where, where we have protections human rights uh, uh, norms we have labor rights health and safety standards however all these um, uh, rules that apply to the brand don't apply to the to the workers because yeah. they're not connected legally so this is a very uh, visible effect of our globalization mm -hmm. and of course um, communication links and transportations you can outsource the labor from mm -hmm. where it is cheapest yes and uh, where you can actually produce things quicker yeah. on demand and you can what you the example which you gave that if it's in consumers pocket mm. if they can afford afforded mm -hmm. then it is you know sustainable but the sustainability is completely to do with producing mm -hmm. and producing cheap and meeting the demand yes. of consumers i mean i don't know i think mo even in china or even pakistan india yeah. bangladesh people who can afford mm -hmm. iphone or whatever i mean mm -hmm. we shouldn't target one brand yeah. <laughs> any well, phone any phone it's anything. one of the most dominant phones, yes yes yeah. yes or any phone they are also, I think, disconnected mm -hmm. to the people who are yeah. building in their own same yes. country. So it's actually less to do with West or East. It's yes. it's actually Agreed. more to do with actual brands and the companies and the model which yeah. they have and their relationships mm -hmm. with their suppliers. So mm -hmm. this is a visible effect, which I think most of us do understand. Okay, so... Mm -hmm. But uh, what is why uh, why what is the fundamental uh, reason which you have find out into your research mm -hmm. that companies are actually willing to do it even if there is a pressure from outside in any way? Like mm -hmm. how do they get away mm -hmm. by doing it? Because yeah. we know it, and you are trying to you know yeah. somehow work on it. But still, it's happening. Yeah. I think uh, that's a very interesting question. How do they get away with it? It's a production model that is based on the, this um, transnational relationships in which uh, companies are subject to the the legislation, to the rules of the country where they uh, are registered. You know, so these big brands, mostly in the in the West, and where they operate. So. The thing is that, you know, what uh, the companies that operate that are registered in the West, they don't necessarily operate in mm. uh, China or in Pakistan because they do it through suppliers. So those suppliers are subject to um, domestic laws. And, um, uh, uh, you know, the labor standards in these countries are not necessarily lower, even though they are in some uh, in some countries and they haven't signed international treaties on international labor law, for example. But um, the level of implementation tends to be much uh, lower. So um, companies actually take advantage of this gap, this governance gap, this the fact that the law applies that we live in a transnational global world, but we have what we call international law, which is laws that apply mostly within countries and then at a at a international level, but not as at a global transnational level. And this is um, they're taking advantage of this uh, of this governance gap. The um, also in the production methods, we try to understand what kind of uh, the purchasing uh, uh, power of the brands and of the large retailers that buy in bulk is actually constantly looking for uh, a minimization of cost. 
because you know yeah. there's the business model is make as much profit as possible and uh we tend to think of a mobile phone or an electronics product in which you have kind of stable raw material um cost even though commodities fluctuate quite a lot but in principle uh you have the technology that costs to quite a lot to produce and then it's patent and it's, uh, it's protected by a lot of uh, uh, international rules. And then whenever you need to uh, reduce the cost, it tends to always skew, uh, squeeze labor cost. So labor mm. cost end up being the margin that gets squeezed and squeezed and squeezed. And so whenever um, a buyer or a brand wants to get a cheaper product, it always ends up being labor cost that ends up being squeezed. So that's why all the pressure is towards the rights of the worker who are working at the distance place. So now, of course, any government can have uh, implementation. So we have, okay, this is a good problem, I think, because we have um, brands who are multinational, but governments who are very much uh, bounded by their national uh, boundaries. So, of course, I mean, even if anything, anything outside of EU, if mm. I'm correct, uh, that government cannot really force uh, someone who is working in Bangladesh. Let's say, mm. I mean, what is the what is the main um, yeah. country which actually produces? Uh, if if we are talking about electronic industry. Yeah. So you hit the nail in the head, as um, as we say, which is um, this idea of can we um, apply our own human rights laws and labor laws and health and safety laws extraterritorially? This means can the UK, for example, impose its minimum standards on other countries? And in principle, we can't. In principle, international law does not allow for a country to um, uh, impose its own standard outside of its own borders. A country has, uh, a state has the obligation to protect the human rights of those under its jurisdiction, which is uh, in the UK, for example, um, those British citizens uh, or any other citizen that is in the territory of the UK. However, to what extent does the UK has a responsibility towards the rights of people in Bangladesh that produce the products that a UK company uh, actually, you know, markets and, and retails? So this is the main one of the main battles that we have in international human rights, and one of the main, uh, you know, scholarly battles that then end up being a real, uh, you know hardcore problem of implementing the minimum rules that we think need to be part of the production systems. So going back to your um, uh, related questions about where it are the main production hubs of electronics, for example, China is a, is a very big uh, hub. But if, very interestingly, China is losing some market as well, some ground of, of labor market attraction because uh, Chinese salaries are becoming higher because uh, Chinese society is actually starting to demand uh, better uh, working conditions, not so much uh, openly because the uh, this, um, um, uh, trade unions are not allowed and they're really persecuted for uh, labor rights are really persecuted labor rights organizations. But um, the whole cost, uh, cost, of uh, China that was uh, one of the big hubs of electronic production has become really much developed. So production is either moving to the rural areas inside mm. mainline China or moving altogether out, for example, to Vietnam, uh, Thailand, uh, Indonesia. We have uh, other uh, big hubs of production in Mexico and we even have a big um, uh, electronics factory in the Czech Republic and okay. this is what uh, is um, this uh, factory called um, this company called Foxconn which is one of the biggest uh, suppliers of Apple for example. They, I read an interesting article that called it uh, the fox at the gates of Europe <laughs> because Foxconn sitting just um, in the in the Czech Republic. 
So these are the main, for example, uh, production hubs. However, electronics uh, require a lot of uh, raw materials that are uh, very much uh, linked to instability and, and social uh, problems and human rights violations, which are the so-called conflict minerals. So tin, tantalum, and tungsten and gold are essential for the protection of electronics and they are uh, basically mined in uh, very difficult conditions and in some of the countries that they're mined they're directly the mining is directly linked to uh, uh, war conflict and horrific violations of human rights for example in the democratic republic of congo okay yeah so we can see that um there are there's a big violation of human rights clearly going on and that is one of the big reasons why um, as you mentioned China mainland they are demanding their rights and so hence they move it from one place to another where people have less power so that they cannot negotiate their right and then hence the price could stay low but if we can track if if it is possible I would love to know that um, what is a life or a routine of someone or a group of people who are actually working and uh, why is it in in what way they are uh, not getting their rights and then how the companies or the supply chain who are in the middle of this process can actually impose what they want and ignore what mm -hmm. actually is demanded mm -hmm. by the workers over there Okay. Yes. So let's think, for example, um, an example of a factory where um, screens for um, uh, tablets are being produced. Think of uh, some factories actually may have uh, several production lines that are for different companies. So not necessarily are they all dedicated to the same product, but you can have different lines producing the screen for uh, Apple or Samsung or um, HP, for example. Uh, think of uh, the kind of work. The kind of work is a very repetitive work, is very low skill. Imagine uh, just cleaning the screen of uh, uh, a screen, uh, trying to uh, wipe it off with a, a chemical to make it smooth, to make it um, shiny, and to do all this under a bright light of uh, to see for blemishes. So this uh, the product the population that tends to access these jobs is very young population tends to be teenagers in their uh, uh, very you know 17 18 lots of women is a, is a strong uh, female uh, force um they are uh, exposed to a bright light for up to 12 hours for example a day which uh, there's uh, evidence that after t uh, one or two weeks of being exposed to this bright light your eyesight starts diminishing they inhale the the chemicals that in many occasions are chemicals that are already forbidden in the west even though they're even as well they are forbidden in their con in the countries in china for example but they're still being used like benzene which is toxic, creates uh, it directly related to leukemia, directly related to fertility um, problems in women. These are very young women who end up uh, having really a lot of uh, problems regarding their uh, fertility issues. And, uh, and of course, the, the repetitive task, uh, which uh, creates um, strains, uh, you know, repetitive strain injuries, etc. And, uh, well, these, um, this flexible force that uh, it tends to be you know, just for example, having moved from the rural areas, uh, not organized, not um, in this in the big cities with a network. These are are people as well that uh, do have uh, strong uh, strong constraints to uh, send money back home. The families depend on them, in, in uh, etc. They don't have the opportunity they're not organized they don't have the opportunity to complain they don't have the opportunity to even understand their own rights in some occasions so you know in some occasions uh, their uh, people are grateful for a job doesn't mean that uh, you know you are in uh, the that you are actually lucky to have a job doesn't mean that you're lucky mm -hmm. to be exploited as well so how do uh, this this thousands of these people available for these jobs and uh, companies uh, do take advantage of this of the 
abundant of uh, of uh, supply of labor. So, uh, the factories environments tend to be very um, rigid, tend to be quite uh, an authoritative place. There, there is um, there was a factory in which the manager used to put. Um, uh, terrible signs all around that were very intimidating mm. and um, and uh, there is no uh, culture of organization of uh, labor rights uh, activism and there's no culture of understanding that, uh, that that is not a situation that one should endure even though you know it's, it's a uh, it's, we're not talking about forced labor in this case even though we have instances of forced labor in Malaysia uh, uh, it was found that there was a, a, a great uh, prevalence of forced labor in the electronics industry but it's uh, disempowering of of workers that has become the norm is the norm that workers have never been empowered there's no culture of empowerment of workers and as i said a very young um force that uh is also could be quite mobile so this is um thanks for actually explaining it in this vivid way because this is one layer of yes. just one product yes. and the one specific production line which yeah. you have explained and i think this is uh, i think we can i can i can understand that this could be happening at a place where they first extract the raw materials yeah exact same situation same conditions same hierarchy of people trying to you know control and managers also come from i think the same area so they are themselves so, yeah. scared hence they do want to make other people work literally like yeah. your animals which you have which yeah. uh, you know you use for domestication or yeah. i don't know for yeah. plying the yeah. fields because yeah. your own livelihood is kind of dependent yeah. on if how much you can make those people work because mm. you they don't i mean system don't really at that point care about that manager because if you are not generating according to the targets and i think i've what i've studied or i've seen in those uh, industries their targets are very uh, ha- like very pre- like the targets drive how much uh, you are valued yeah. i mean if you don't meet the target few times it's 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 get tricky yeah yeah so exactly. so that is the layer and that is one of the reasons why i think i next time go to buy an electronic yeah. which is actually great irony of our modern society that this is what allow us right now to actually communicate and yeah. uh, we are using all the electronics yes but right now we are still talking about how how this problem is so complicated and i mean i mean i think but if we i think i or anyone who's listening to it can actually imagine and you know empathize with and and yeah. enhance that how complicated this uh, process is where we are right now and how are we actually getting and progressing yeah. i think we can be mindful of uh, using yeah. you know our uh, products but i i if i'm right i don't think this would solve yeah i think that that is that is the key actually into um trying to revert this um uh, approach that um companies big brands are are happy to maintain which is the consumer responsibility so um oh you know you have a choice you know you can choose fair trade bananas or not fair trade bananas you can choose uh, fair trade coffee and pay a bit more or not uh you can uh, choose to buy less clothes or more clothes well actually it shouldn't be a choice of the consumer you know we should all uh, have the commitment to try to live more ethically more responsibly more according to our own values but it has to come from whoever holds the 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 significant power in the in the uh, chain and that is the big retailers and the big uh, brands but also states and states have the capacity to create uh, laws that uh, uh, that um push for some kind of sustainable production responsible business conduct responsible business conduct can't come exclusively from the uh, uh, from the consumer and 
we can't just leave it to companies to altruistically uh, come and change their own behavior. We need, and this is, you know, from the point of view of an international lawyer, as I am, we need the right regulation to go beyond incentivizing better models or beyond incentivizing better consumption. We need to actually uh, make sure that the way we do business is not a way that harms human beings, that the profit margins cannot be uh, guaranteed through the exploitation of, of people. So um, this is, uh, I think you're absolutely right when you say, well, what can we do? Because we can't, we can't, we have, there is some uh, uh, supply of uh, ethical fashion, for example. There is just one company that tries to make uh, the ethical phones all through the supply chain. And they even, um, uh, they even say they can't guarantee that every single part of the chain is ethical and sustainable. But uh, it shouldn't be our decision exclusively. You know, our own, obviously, position and, uh, and our own consumption is important, but we shouldn't be the ones having to do this. So so this is very funny, which I've realized <laughs> that. So there is, in the middle, yeah. there's a concentrated uh, network yeah. of uh, companies. Yeah. I mean, you can call it whatever would you, you want to call it. It's, yeah. it's a supply chain, it's brands, it's buying houses, yeah. Yeah. then it's factories. So, so, and then on the both side are the people who are not organized and their network is not actually formed tightly. They're disintegrated. And uh, on that side of the position where you can call it the people who are actually producing it, I mean, making it and being forced to meet certain targets on the expense of their own rights. And then on the other side, uh, the factories are actually telling them that, oh, no, we are producing it for the people and then saying it to the consumers that, oh, it's actually, you know, you are powerful and you it's for you and you are the ones who are using the products. Hence, on both sides, uh, they are actually being exploited at some level. Mm -hmm. I mean, even the buyers, I can see feel guilty most of the time. We want to yeah. be ethical and sometimes we, we want to do something about it. But ultimately, we feel that the power is in the hands of the buyers. Although with certain technology-driven environment, you have so much pressure and then the companies who don't have certain kind of electronic devices would not survive in that competitive environment. Hence, they are just now forced to buy certain things from very specific brands. So it is crazy that uh, what appears to be the model which is driven by buyers and the buyers are feeling somehow that they have some sort of, you know, influence. They don't really have because they're not organized at all. I mean, they can have. I mean, mm -hmm. if, if they for sure somehow there's an NGO or an organization yeah. which can pressurize, as you are saying, the governments to actually yeah. al uh, not allow the market to run rampant mm -hmm. and to actually create their own rules. Because I think this is one of the points which you mentioned that the market is competing uh, without the boundaries and mm -hmm. I, I mean everywhere uh, you can see that markets are somehow competing uh, in a very harsh and uh, without checked boundaries mm -hmm. so, so so market are now driving I think every aspect of this conversation because mm -hmm. what matters is well, I mean, you know, we have to produce. I mean, what are you? Uh, if we say something uh, about this thing, it would be like, oh, are you against progress? I mean, this is I something agree. which, you know, which comes yeah. a lot. But that is because we have all accepted the rules of mm -hmm. market, which yeah. came out of this crazy competition. Yeah. Hence, why even we are doing it? Like, yeah. why are we actually progressing if mm -hmm. it is not mm -hmm. for the yeah. consumers and the people who are actually working. So w what is what is it about anyway? Agreed. And um, uh, interestingly, in the 1970s, uh, when the uh, uh, movement of uh, of uh, 
trying to see what the role of corporations was and how corporations had started becoming really powerful and even having political influence in some uh, places, being used uh, in the context of decolonization and, and uh, the, the liberalization of trade at the beginning, etc. The, the, an economist called Freeman, he said, well, the only role of corporation is to make profit. The only social responsibility of corporation is to make profit. So corporations are not, um, uh, you know, substitutes for government and they're not, uh, shouldn't be like some kind of benefactor of a society. However, we've, we've progressed in the, until um, now and we are trying, we're, we're in a kind of, quite revolution now trying to we've looked at uh, how we can apply international law to corporations how we can apply human rights to corporations states are right now arguing whether we can have a treaty to um, uh, regulate corporations but uh, I think one interesting uh, progress is the a scholarly debate starting on the purpose of corporation what is the purpose of a corporation if until now we thought the purpose was simply to um, uh, produce uh, uh, benefits, to produce uh, capital, to produce, uh, and that way automatically we understand it produce jobs and jobs then produce uh, uh, more wealth and more wealth make uh, societies advance. Um, is it time to actually think of what is the purpose of a corporation as an organ of society? Is Does it beyond this kind of organic production of wealth that we hope will somehow trickle down? Or is it actually being part of society in terms of being accountable to not only its shareholders, but to the stakeholders, this is, to the communities therein, to the uh, people, that, um, to their consumers, to the workers. So going beyond a corporation being um, exclusively a production of wealth and let's hope that that, <laughs> that yeah. works out to the uh, benefit of most people. So I, I would just go on this, uh, just a little bit in this direction about super organisms and how yeah. you know these entities are formed and then come back to mm -hmm. the supply chain, just because there's an interesting research done by this astrophysicist, who uh, his name is Jeffrey Vest. Okay. Um, and uh, he, he does this research on complexity, complexity of organisms, um, organic organisms, that's how he started. So mm -hmm. he is an astrophysicist who then converted uh, towards researching about biology and how, and he find these, found these scaling laws that uh, when mammals, let's say mouse or anyone who, when they scale up, because we found mammals in every size, we, blue, old, blue whales, everything. But they found that how they scale up has a very specific rule to it, which governs their size. So everyone has nearly similar heartbeats. So small mammals will have faster heartbeats and then the biggers would have smaller heartbeats. And then uh, when these scaling laws are actually governing everything, wh whatever life it is, that has a power of four. Somehow it's like if, if they grow, uh, there is a saving of 0.25% in their metabolism. Okay. So somehow like it's, a, it's an efficiency thing. That, like mm -hmm. as you grow bigger, you save more mm -hmm. on your metabolism. Hence you require less food and you live longer. Okay. So, <clears throat> so then he he wanted to see that the cities follow the same kind of rule, and then he found yeah indeed they do follow pretty similar kind of rule like they have networks how we have networks mm -hmm. and in individual cells have to get oxygen, we have roads and everyone has to have you know somehow networks, and but cities actually save less then the organic uh, organisms mean they'd save 0.15% mm -hmm. on their increase, but they still save. As the city gets bigger, mm -hmm. they have less uh, things, And but the pace, that's the difference. The organic organism, the pace of life as they get bigger is slower, mm -hmm. but for the cities, pace of life actually gets mm -hmm. faster. Mm -hmm. Hence, uh, 
he's he explained it that we are building synthetic cities and in these cities one of the main thing is these companies and organizations which are actually producing these opportunities for us to grow and uh, the model is getting faster and faster and faster and it's driven by this uh, growth model where we are competing against each other and then we want to grow further and it creates good and negative aspects or bad or whatever you want to term it equally at mm-hmm. a at, at a double rate so mm-hmm. so it's like a you hope that you know you uh, go towards one human rights or you go towards uh, market as you're saying mm-hmm. redefine what cities are and that what becomes the feedback loop mm-hmm. of that city or that organism but he is actually also on the basis of astrophysics and and maths and fundamental laws describing what a city and companies are governed by and what are we governed by mm-hmm. hence if we understand that there is a mindless growth mm-hmm. in our cities which we have taken from our organic uh, model and if we and he is explaining that there is a fundamental flaw in this kind of a model which we have we have we are watching right now in a very specific level so i know that this is all what i said it's like abstracts like what what is going on like there's just so many example but i actually wanted to say all this to bring to this one specific thing one of a very specific m- example of this mindless growth and a fundamental flaw uh, we have is that it grows forever the series grows forever if not redefined or checked or uh somehow uh re uh, organized and one of the example is this model of our supply chain which uh-huh. we just described that our cities and companies are growing mindlessly and gaining more and more and more power and the people around the supply chain who are a bit further away are suffering also mm-hmm. pretty much mindlessly and uh, they are Uh, suffering and they are being targeted by this growth over here directly pretty much so uh, so coming back to now supply chain as you, as you mentioned i think that is actually the perfectly right time if people from all the other subjects and places are trying to redefine mm-hmm. the actual uh, reasons and the laws and the meaning of what this organization are actually about mm mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's that's very interesting. I hadn't uh I I didn't know this uh this um the uh, uh, theoretical approach but it's uh yeah, it's fascinating. I think uh we are at a interesting time now of redefinition. But we've had this uh you know, kind of history repeats itself as well in terms of like we um focus on certain social problems and and others remain obscure and while we are you know now we have this other new threats come in the moment we kind of try to solve through this reorganization uh, that you for uh, described for example try to solve s- uh, some human rights challenges we're going to get the next one coming and uh, and this for example we're talking about automatization robotization etc to one, uh, one moment in which um i had a, i had a conversation I was in a conversation with uh, some representative of the industry and they were telling me well you know all oh, this is not going to matter because these people are not going to have jobs anyway uh in 10 years time and i said well let's make sure that in these 10 years we're not exploiting them and you know <laughs> we'll at the same time let's worry about what's going to happen to societies when they um stop having this access to these cheap uh, um jobs and these flexible jobs and low skilled and what was going to happen when we really need much level of skill uh, jobs to uh, make certain um i you know the robotics and all that and then we won't uh, need so many uh, of these other jobs and these people may find themselves in a situation that in which they definitely do not have jobs let's make sure that in the meanwhile we're not kind of you know exploiting them so yes i think uh, it is an interesting uh, point of like do we have time to reorganize it before it kind of 
reorganizes itself through another input, technological yeah. input, or even, you know, environmental input in which, you know, it makes it very difficult to work in certain places of the earth. They're very difficult to live and things like that. Yeah, I mean, uh, it can reorganize itself because it's built, our markets are built on this evolutionary model, which mm -hmm. is like a game theory. If you uh -huh. build something based on these four laws of adaptation and evolve and so it actually just protects itself it acts as an evolutionary kind of force which mm -hmm. somehow anticipates sees and readjust and try to survive because it is useful it's been useful yeah. to you know build companies and uh, make these uh, great advances what we call it great advances and but well i do agree with one of the um, <coughs> points that there's a whatever I've tried to look at and researched, there is a big chance, pretty high chance of most of the people who are working this this low skill level jobs to might not have jobs. But that is a very funny approach to say that, oh, well, let's just not <laughs> worry yeah. about it right now, yeah. because. Well, if you are not worried about right mm -hmm. now, now and then afterwards they don't even have a job, mm -hmm. means they are nearly irrelevant. Right yeah. now they have at least some power because yeah. factory needs them yeah. because if they all go out, the production line would stop. Yeah. Imagine if they are not even needed at all. Yeah. Like they're irrelevant. It doesn't even yeah. matter Yes. what is done with that. So if you are not building certain rules or if you're not working towards what's happening to them right now when they have some negotiation power uh, how would you solve the problem and it would become even more complicated yeah. i mean yeah. and i think yeah and we've um chat about this before this idea of like um oh well you know um, the, if they weren't doing this they'll be doing something else like if children weren't working in the factory they'll be in the street begging or they'll be subject to prostitution etc or if uh, these women weren't being uh, uh, trafficked into the uh, the west uh, to work as uh, domestic uh, workers they'll be being uh, trafficked for prostitution or something like that you know so it is uh, it, it is this um, uh, the lack of value of, of uh, attaching value to a human being as if uh, a human being is a commodity and this is um, the main um, one of the main approaches to uh, studying forced labor the so-called modern slavery and human trafficking is how the commoditization of humans and how uh, humans have become as cheap or even cheaper than other um, uh, products that are part of the um, transnational illegal network, etc. It's, it's cheaper to have uh, traffic a human than it is to traffic drugs, for example, to traffic weapons. And so is this this disregard for the dignity of, uh, of uh, human beings, which is very dangerous. And this is why we continue to need um, uh, international human rights, because international human rights, the basis of international human rights is inherent dignity of human beings, it is uh, it, people don't have rights because states um, give give them rights. People have rights because they're, they're born human, and humans inherently have human dignity. So um, this is why international human rights law is still relevant in this. You know, if we think uh, that these uh, um, orga uh, big organizations transform themselves and through the uh, impact of external events and it's all internal reorganization, uh, I think an element that we cannot forget is the power of regulation and law. This is of human beings creating the rules for for all of us which in this social pact that we've established ourselves which is follow the yeah. law that we create in order to to continue to protect human beings yeah i mean for sure we have a problem uh of overpopulation definitely mm -hmm. and then that's why we are getting exploited uh then there is another problem which we mentioned is about not having a protective body which consider humanity as a global identity. But, mm -hmm. of course, we consider the companies and the governments as one of the m governing power. Hence, if you are out of that boundary line, you don't have 
those rights. I mean, if you don't have the right identity, you don't have those rights. But the companies don't really care about that because they are only responsible in those boundaries. Hence, they go out. So it's like a misalignment with mm. globalization and not being able to, on a human level, understand and empathize and consider ourselves Mm. as a global identity not in a way that oh well in uh, not not in a I mean, not in a trans, not in a way where we are really competing somehow against mm-hmm. um companies or now like this is our side like we are now human versus robots or not not again same traps of uh, in group and out group uh, sort of conflict but really understanding as you said the basic human rights in our transforming world where in some time governments and nationalities would be irrelevant no matter how much you want to stick to them mm-hmm. because this is actually one of the examples of it it does I mean it really uh, what we are heading against right now is that the model of government and national identities is not working here because there is a big distance between those governments and uh, those individuals who are working in that particular environment which you mentioned with bright light or Mm -hmm. there are kids who are working with uh, different kind of Injuries, maybe they are working with a different kind of stress, which is mm-hmm. could be a traumatic stress, but they are just they, mm-hmm. they they have to go there every day and they just have to work. So ultimately, can we can call it modern slavery? Mm-hmm. It does look like modern slavery, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, but we cannot solve it because we are still stuck with our model of uh, government and national identities mm-hmm. and human rights based on very specific boundaries hence mm-hmm. i mean we are t- we would really have to somehow uh, tr- transform and mm-hmm. actually go beyond our model of human right drives from our identities mm-hmm. and as you said it it has to really be an international a human international rights c- approach which uh, somehow transform this thing yeah, you think about um, in terms of uh, you know in in international uh, international law or international human rights. Sorry, it's a very young legal system in terms of uh, uh, in comparison with international law in general, with like which is the way the states have been regulated themselves for a long time. International human rights law, as a legal body, um, grows out of the um, Second World War and the attempts at the Second World War to not repeat the atrocities that happened during the war and to actually create an a, a international society that has those values as its heart. So the Universal Declaration of Human Rights is only from 1948. So it's, it's yesterday in terms in international law terms. So this is the, the question is, is this system of uh, human rights protection still valid when it was created for a world in which there were very few states because most of the states were still um, under colonial rule. Therefore, there was a very small and tight group of states that were kind of quite culturally similar because, um, you know, the political uh, systems and, and kind of uh, social, religious traditions, etc. And um, creating these rules that always preserved their main interest, which was the sovereignty of the state. In principle, human rights was something that states could kind of control within their borders, and this uh, links with the what we talk about, the extraterritoriality before. So we are living in a different world in which maybe states are not the most powerful agents anymore, or at least not all the states, and um, in which uh, uh, human uh, rights are concerns of uh, no longer a con- domestic or a concern, but also an international global concern, do we have the right tools? Do we, uh, the over-reliance on states being the one who create the norms and uh, corporations, for example, not being um, 
the recipients of these norms, of these human rights norms, individuals not having their power to challenge non-state actors such as corporations. Is this uh, still a valid um, legal model to protect human dignity if human dignity is what this uh, is at the heart of the of the legal model mm. and and we assume it is at this moment so um, we need to think about to what extent the tools that we have are valuable still valuable for the challenges that we face and in in principle the basics are this idea of human dignity, the idea of universality, all the rights for all the people, the idea of interdependence, you know, every right is dependent on the other. You cannot have, uh, um, you know, uh, a right to demonstrate and to vote and to choose your political leaders if you can't eat or you don't have uh, shelter of your children. Uh, are dying of diseases but on the other hand if you don't have the right to demonstrate uh, and uh, and uh, vocally um, challenge your leaders your situation is never going to improve your so the interdependence between social uh, economic uh, and civil political rights still valid as the basis of this legal system and so universality interdependence and um, interrelation of all this uh, of all these rights so the basis are still valuable what might be challenging is the instrument itself yeah so i mean all these first of all i think most of us don't even realize that how bad the situation is to be very honest because well that's when you go there and then you research something and then you realize oh well the slavery does exist like seriously sometimes it's indirect as we have mentioned i don't know maybe is there another example where the slavery is very direct mm -hmm. and uh, i mean yes. these are the people who are somehow forced by their environment and yeah. hence they are now choosing yeah to be this kind of modern solution but but is there is there a yes there is definitely let's think for example of the uh, fishing industry let's think of the seafood industry this is a big scandal uh, several years ago and uh, in thailand thai um, uh, seafood vessels would uh, literally have burmese migrants mm -hmm. chained to the boat for three years in the middle of the high seas where they were um, uh, compelled to uh, fish every day uh, non-stop for three years to pay the debt for having been uh, given the job for example or they've been trafficked or uh, captured and um, and they would just stay in the high seas and the ships would come to pick up the, the seafood and bring them back to shore these uh, people never so uh, they were never free for like three to four years. This is uh, this was a common occurrence for so, for a while. Most of the seafood that you would buy in a British supermarket came from Thailand. So therefore, with a high risk of direct slavery. slavery. And and uh, I think I remember one of the examples uh, with the prison manufacturing. Mm -hmm. I mean, how, how the companies outsourced to yeah. prison i mean what would you classify it I mean, how, yeah what is this model prison work is uh it's uh according to the international labor organization prison work is only allowed if it gets remuneration and if it's uh if it's uh voluntary in terms of like you know the the, and the uh, inmates actually uh, want to access this think uh, um, that forced labor is uh, um, a labor relationship in which the person that is being forced has no capacity to either deny entering into the relationship or leaving the relationship. It could be that you you entered voluntarily and then you can't leave the relationship for many reasons, from your uh, documents being taken away to a, co a coercive situation that uh, threats or to yourself or your family, etc. No debts, etc. So prison labor is uh, in many places still it's um, it's not a voluntary uh, relationship. 
relationship in which the inmate enters voluntarily into. So there is, uh, there's still as well labor camps uh, where uh, people are put, re-education camps in which people are put to work, etc. We have the example in China of um, the Muslim minorities, which are actually put in re-education camps, which are labor camps, etc. So yeah, prison labor is... Um, it's a uh, it's regulated international uh, labor law, but it's still very prevalent. But in principle, if you you know as voluntarily you want to participate, you obviously don't have as much uh, uh, leeway into establishing the terms of like the prices or the lead times or your supply or your the, the who you sell to. But um, it's it, it's perfectly regulated in in um, Western many Western countries. So, I mean, this is, uh, so fundamentally we are looking at uh, economic and welfare prosperity of large number of population who are actually just looking to feed their family and earn something which is just a little bit above or not even above, just barely fulfilling their basic human rights. Uh, hence, they get um, exploited. Mm-hmm. And then we're looking at a large number of population, which gives uh, organizations uh, loads of power to exploit them because there is endless, well, not endless, there's a lot of uh, uh, people who are willing to take that work if someone's, you know, threatens to leave because they are not getting uh, right amount of uh, care or right amount of uh, salary. And then we have a misalignment with our market structures who are mostly driven with the competition between each other and to provide consumers so they can earn the highest amount of profit, hence not caring about what the human values are because the markets have been driven for so long and we as human ourselves are competing and trying to improve against each other for now centuries and maybe thousands of years Mm -hmm. that somehow we are now a global society hence forgetting in that huge uh, collaboration that what our values really are and now the geographical boundaries and the old limitation which might have checked certain societies to really see if they are going right or wrong is now covered you know by actually going from one place to another and avoiding those limitations uh, so which gives us a lot of uh, opportunity to grow Mm-hmm. but it also creates a lot of problems. Now, jobs, mm-hmm. as in like, as, as a, this is all, I, I mean, it, at the base of all of it is that humans need to work so that they can earn. And that was possible, well, that was necessary before we created these great factories which somehow create wealth. Let's mm-hmm. say if, if we assume that they create wealth because they are producing. Uh, and f- before that, we really, humans really needed to hunt or really needed to do agriculture if they wanted to eat. But that's the job was, that's where the jobs come from. That's where our sense of identity comes from. So now we do need to have jobs so that we can earn. And those jobs are no longer individual uh, going out and hunting for themselves or going out and hunting for their tribe. But, you know, we work in a university like right here. And then it's, it's, it's a, it's, I mean, we are, uh, I mean, you're teaching people from all over the world. Yeah. But it's, it's a completely different example because you're adding value and everything and you have a lot of power. But then there are people over there who are working directly, as we are mentioned, in, in industry. But we also need to treat them as human as we should treat someone who is working as our colleague but that is a huge gap because they are working to literally feed themselves and their family and Mm -hmm. to get by and uh, adding value into the society is way i mean it's it's not what the main motivation is 
but the human right aspect and also the value how society value i mean how you said that we are fundamentally disoriented in that aspect that we look at everything we would look at a tree and see what is the value of this tree yeah. in our economic model and then yeah. we will rate it and we would leave it there or we would extract something out of it yeah. so ultimately i mean this is a very complicated problem already i can <laughs> see that there's no way <laughs> i can go anywhere from this point on but uh if we can actually somehow work mm-hmm. towards a model which a lot of people are looking at where the requirement to feed at least mm. or basic shelter would not be that um elementary mm-hmm. in people's life some sort of national basic income mm-hmm. uh where automation would actually increase uh the economic value and would generate profit mm-hmm. and certain redistribution would allow these people to have their dignity to mm-hmm. themselves at uh, just at the basic level do you think that would help in any way i mean i, I mean what is the role of jobs because that <laughs> it seems like that jobs are like at the core yeah of being exploited and then human rights yeah. I think that the several very interesting points there um what I think is this um the way we've uh, uh, classified some jobs as adding value whilst others don't in terms of you know why um have we um classified some jobs as low skilled as interchangeable why can uh, any person do the cleaning of the screen whilst only someone like you or someone like me can do the jobs that we do you know to to what extent have we fallen prey of this uh, idea of some jobs are just interchangeable so are, are the people who do them to um so i think that's that's a big um that is a big issue that we need to resolve the this idea of low skill therefore um uh, not valuable well if if those people weren't doing those jobs you wouldn't have the microphone that we're using now you know so your your job wouldn't be able to be done but on the other hand i think very interestingly this idea of um, of uh, what is the minimum that society requires and uh, this was already in the 1948 uh, declaration of human rights this, uh, and uh, in the subsequent um, uh, covenants that developed it so in the the article 11 of the uh, convention international covenant of economic social cultural rights talk about the right to an adequate standard of living so you know we've already kind of we've already enunciated what it is what is the an adequate standard of living we do have this concept of there is a minimum to fulfill human dignity so adequate standard of living includes um uh shelter includes food and water so um we have the we have the instruments we just have to use them and we have to put behind them the priorities that they they have uh, the priority of uh, states to the develop the, the international legal norms and to actually subject all of those that could uh, and do impact on people's enjoyment of their own rights is no longer the state that is the major force that may um determine how a human lives it's also all these other non-state actors in particular corporations as we've been talking so let's use the instruments that we have let's use um international human rights and the concept of inherent human dignity to be able to shape the the way we work we the live we interact and we care for others yeah so um that's that's yeah that is the, that's that's one of the only ways forward definitely would you do you want to talk about uh the your book oh. um uh, yeah more? i want to i want to thank you for bringing that up because um i i do want to mention the book because i want to uh, make a tribute So the book um, uh, War Conflict and Human Rights which uh, was uh, which third edition came out um 
uh, at the beginning of this year, at, la- at the end of last year, um, is co-written with uh, Professor Chandra Lekasriram and uh, uh, Johanna Herman. So the three of us uh, wrote this book um, several years ago, so it's a third edition. And I just want to use this time and this moment to pray tribute to Chandra, who very uh, sadly and unexpectedly passed away um, uh, at the end of 2018. And Chandra was a force of nature. She was an absolute amazing scholar, an absolute amazing person, and I owe Chandra a lot. I owe her who I am as a scholar. I owe her, I think, um, what I know as a, as a researcher and as an academic and as a female academic. And I just uh, wanted to mention the book because um, I think uh, it's a it's a great um, contribution to, uh, to to the understanding between uh, of, of the place of human rights in the uh, context of conflict and post-conflict reconstruction and the way societies have to deal with uh, the present and uh, past violent um, uh, uh, and by and the legacy of mass atrocities and uh, I just uh, think it's um, it's a uh, uh, valid book still and it's all due to Chandra's vision and Chandra's work so thank you for allowing me to say it no 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 of course but is there, do you want to I mean that's great that's that's brilliant I mean do you want to define like maybe summarize the yeah well uh, we do the, the book is now become a textbook in terms of like uh, it is a it is um, also thought for uh, teaching as a teaching tool and uh, in there we explore this um, causes uh, and consequences of conflict in terms of human rights violations and uh, what are the international tools to address uh, the legacy of violence and uh, I think uh, um, just uh, basically we keep uh, try to keep it updated every every three years and not just uh, say we're working on the next edition okay okay anything else would you like to mention yeah thank you so much Olga thank, thank you. you very much no thanks problem.